are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. My name is David Guzik. If you've never joined me before, I'm so pleased that we could come together for this time. Uh, I'm glad that we are here to talk about the Bible, to answer your questions. And how we do it normally is I begin with a lead question that comes in from, uh, it could come in many different places. It could come from our viewing audience. It could be a leftover question from a previous Thursday afternoon. It could be any kind of thing that comes in email, whatever. This is a question that comes from Loretta. And if I remember correctly, this question from Loretta came in by Facebook. So let me get to Loretta's question here after I take a little drink of coffee. All right, here's Loretta's question. It has to do with whether or not Luke was a Jew or a Gentile. And I really appreciated this question. Loretta's question is this. I have always assumed that Luke was a Gentile, I guess because it's so widely taught and accepted. I have never questioned it and really still don't. However, I was in a Bible study group earlier this evening and Luke came up because we're studying Acts. We have a new person in our group who's very Jewish-minded, for lack of a better word. So she insisted quite strongly that Luke was, in fact, Jewish. Was Luke a Jew or a Gentile? Now, Loretta, let me get to this question. Just say, first of all, I love this kind of question. I don't know if you've noticed here on our uh, Thursday q and I'm usually not a dealing a whole lot with questions, you know, that are the current talking points, the current events. Uh, It's not because I mind those, and of course, occasionally I do them. I'll speak to those things. But I I think that there's other people on uh, the different channels where this is broadcast who do a great job of that, and I'm grateful for that. But what I really tend to favor are the questions that get down to the way that we think about and through the Bible. And this question fits in that category exactly, because it's great to take a look at the things that people say or just assume in the Bible and then ask ourselves, well, how do we really know that? Again, I think that's a great approach for us to take. So, um, many people often say, Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, the author of the Book of Acts, many people often say Luke was a Gentile. Hey, it is completely fair for any believer to simply ask, well, how do we know? You say that. How do we know that it's true? How do we really know if Luke was a Christian? We know he was a Christian, but a Christian from a Jewish background or a Christian from a Gentile background, or maybe honestly, maybe we just can't know at all and people are just assuming. These are fantastic questions. It's always a good thing to ask when you're studying the Bible and somebody makes an assertion, well, how do we know that? What's the evidence behind that? So look, let's talk about this with the person of Luke. How do we know whether or not Luke was a Jew or a Gentile? Let's go through the biblical evidence of what we know about Luke. First of all, we know that Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. We see this in Acts chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, where it says, Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samarathese, and the next day came to Neapolis. Now, if you notice in that Acts chapter 16, verses 10 and 11 context, Luke uses the pronouns we, again, indicating that he was part of this group that traveled with the apostle Paul. In Troas, it seems that Paul met, became associated with Luke, And from Troas on, Luke traveled with it. We know from the pronouns of we and us in Acts chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. Then later on in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, this is towards the end of the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul writes this, only Luke is with me. And then in Philemon chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, which was written previous to 2 Timothy, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. 
So the evidence is very clear that Luke was a companion of Paul. But those passages don't do really anything to tell us whether or not Luke was from a Jewish background or from a Gentile background. Okay, let's look at a second fact we know about Luke. We know that Paul called Luke the beloved physician. We see that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, where he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Luke was a doctor. Therefore, you could say he was a man of science and research. This is reflected in his history of the life of Jesus, both in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, and his account of the early church, the book of Acts. So he was a physician. Some people think that Luke might have even been something of Paul's personal physician, because there's some evidence in the New Testament that Paul had somewhat frequent ailments, uh, things that that troubled him or, or bothered him physically. And Luke might have been something or at least functioned as a personal doctor to Paul. So we know that Luke was a physician. Now, we know that he was a commander of Paul. We know that he was a physician. What else do we know about Luke? Well, number three, we're pretty sure that Luke was a Gentile. Every indication we have points to him being a Gentile. Let me show you the most conclusive evidence, and then I'll give you a lesser evidence after this. The most conclusive evidence we have comes from comparing Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, with Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. You'll see what I mean. Let me read to you now Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, where we read this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So do you see what Paul does there in Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11? He lists several men, uh, Aristarchus, Mark, uh, Justice, these, uh, or Jesus, who is called Justice, those were his fellow workers for the kingdom of God and the only ones who were of the circumcision, the only ones who were Jewish. And he says, they proved to be a comfort for me. Now, just a couple verses later in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we read, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So, do you see what we're getting at here? In verses 10 and 11 of Colossians chapter 4, Paul describes and lists the names of the Jewish men who were his fellow workers and present companions. Then later in verse 14, he mentions Luke. In other words, Luke was not among his Jewish companions. Therefore, he was among Paul's Gentile companions. And I regard this as being a pretty strong evidence that Luke was a Christian, of course, from a Gentile background and not from a Jewish background, Paul seems to make that pretty clear in the way that he arranges the names in Colossians chapter 4. So, that's the greater evidence. Let me give a lesser evidence right here. The name Luke is in itself a Gentile name of Greek or Roman background. I found this on the internet. It just says, Luke is the English form of the Latin Lucas, which comes from the Greek name Laucus, meaning from Luciana, referring to a region in southern Italy. Now, that doesn't prove that Luke was a Gentile, because Gentiles definitely could, excuse me, because Jews definitely could have Greek or Roman names. I think of one notable person in the uh, New Testament who fits that, and that would be, of course, Apollos. Apollos is described in the book of Acts as a Jewish man. There's no doubt about it. But Apollos is very much a Greek or Roman name. So, for someone to have a Greek or Roman name doesn't prove that they were a Gentile, but at least it's evidence in that direction. So, the bigger evidence is how Paul arranges the names in Colossians chapter 4 a lesser evidence is that Luke itself is a Gentile or Roman name. I think that those things together pretty collectively tell us that, yes, Luke was, in fact, a Gentile and not of Jewish origin. But let me go back to this whole thing with you, Loretta. 
I think this is a great kind of question to ask. A marvelous question. Because it's always good when people make assertions from the Bible, such as this, Luke was a Gentile. It's always, well, how do we know that? Who says? You say Luke was a Gentile. Someone else says that Luke was a Jew. What reason do we have to believe one way or another that Luke, in fact, was a Gentile? And I think that that sort of, as much as we probably could hope for, it proves it. So thank you very much for that question, Loretta. I'm going to go here now on the questions that have come to us through the live chat and uh, forwarded to me through our moderator, Devin. That's how it works on our Thursday Q&A. You submit the question in the live chat and our moderators take it and forward them to me. And by the way, let me just explain a little something about how our moderator, Devin, works. These are the instructions I've given to Devin. Devin, don't don't exclude hard questions or difficult questions. That's not the idea because look, friends, I, I hope you understand. I have no problem telling you if I don't know an answer to a question. It's okay with me to just say, I don't know and to leave it at that. But I will say this, I tell Devin to prioritize two kinds of questions. Number one, questions that have to do with the lead question that we're dealing with on that day, prioritize those. And number two, to prioritize questions that might have the broadest appeal to our listening audience because many weeks we can't get to every question that comes in. I'd rather prioritize the questions that might have the broadest appeal to people. So with that, let me get to the first question from Char, uh, apparently part of our TWR 360 audience. Hey, I just want to give another uh, call out to our TWR 360 audience Trans World Radio 360 is the online presence of that wonderful ministry, Trans World Radio. Uh, we're very pleased for our partnership with them that lets us know and uh, tells us that um, our work here is partnering with them, a wonderful ministry that reaches the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Char's question is this. In your commentary on 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 5 through 9, you talk about Israel's false worship of the true God under Jehoahaz. Can you explain this and possibly give examples of how this might happen today? Okay, uh, 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 5 through 9. I'll read those verses to you, and then we can just talk about it. It says, uh, Then the Lord gave Israel delivery, so a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless... They did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked in them, and a wooden image also remained in Samaria. So, here is the idea, and especially having to do with the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's central sin was this, was he did not want the people of the northern kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel that was called the kingdom of Israel and its capital was Samaria. He did not want them going down to the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was to worship. So he said, we will worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, but we will worship him at our own appointed places and in the figures of altars that we will make. So what Je um Jehoahaz, excuse me, what uh, Jeroboam did, and Jehoahaz followed in the sins of Jeroboam, was he claimed that they were worshiping the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he was doing it in a wrong and false way. So, if I could explain like this. Clearly, everybody understands that the God of um, uh the Hindu gods, let's say that. Those are false gods. Whatever gods are in the Hindu, you know, uh, scheme of gods, Rama, all the rest of them, those are false gods. If someone worships those gods, they're consciously turning from the worship of the God that's revealed in the Bible to the worship of a false god. And that's a temptation for people, for sure. Now, of course, we make idols in many lesser ways for ourselves today, but that would be an obvious way of idolatry. That's a sin. 
Jeroboam and Jehoaz following after him, his sin was that they claimed to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they did it in a way that God did not sanction, did not approve. And so it was the false worship of the true God. I'll explain um, in the sort of over-the-top way for you today, Char. If someone were to uh, say, I'm going to worship the Lord today with an animal sacrifice. Listen, God has made it clear that in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ, he does not want to be worshiped by animal sacrifices. That would be a worship of the true God, at least in some way, but in a way that God has not prescribed. And it can happen other ways as well. If somebody says, um, listen, I want to worship God, you know, in any number of ways that aren't commanded or allowed by scripture. Uh, I want to worship the true God by having a seance with the dead. No, you may claim you're worshiping the true God, but you're doing it in a way that God has not permitted or allowed at all. So this is the distinction that I would make, Char. Uh, Now, both of these are sins. I'm not trying to say that one is not a sin and one is. They're both obviously sins. They're just different kinds of sins. One is to intentionally worship a different God, a false God. Another is to claim you're worshiping the true God, but to do it in a way, in a manner that he has not prescribed. And so it's the false worship of what you claim to be is the true God. Hope that helps you there, Char. Let me go on to the next question here from Anahui. Anahui asks this question. Let me get my screen the way I want it here. Ask this question. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 9 reads in part, Then that which was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Do you know where to find the prophecy by Jeremiah? Okay, Anahui, I'm doing this a little bit from, I, I think I know the passage you're talking about. I'm going to go over to my uh, commentary online and take a look at that here in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, i tell you what, I'll even do this. I'll even move it over to where we can look at this together. I don't know if this is good um, if this is good practice or not, but let's take a look at this together. I'm going to go over to my commentary on Matthew chapter 27, and I'm pretty sure I know the passage you're talking about, because in that passage, Matthew chapter 27, verse 9, I'm pretty sure it's talking about where the dead were raised. Okay, this was spoken, fulfilled, which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet. Here we see that there's been much question about this quotation attributed to Jeremiah because it's actually found in Zechariah chapter 11. Matthew says that the word was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, though we find it recorded in Zechariah. Some think that this could be a copyist error. Perhaps Matthew wrote Zechariah, but an early copyist mistakenly put Jeremiah instead, and this rare mistake was repeated in subsequent copies. That's one idea. Some think that Jeremiah spoke of the prophecy and Zechariah recorded it and the word was spoken by Jeremiah, but recorded by Zechariah. That's another possibility. But I think it's more likely that Matthew refers to the scroll of Jeremiah, which included the book of Zechariah. So really, that's how I would kind of approach that particular passage and look at it. He's referring to a prophecy that comes from Zechariah, but he mentions it in connection with Jeremiah. Those three suggestions that I offered there in the commentary, I think are probably the best way that you could do it. Now, for those of you who are viewing, if you want to know what I just referenced right there, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible, and um, some people find it helpful. So, what I just did, instead of trying to do it from memory, I looked up my notes, my commentary in that particular section, and we just looked at it together. You can find that commentary at EnduringWord.com, or you can also use it on your smartphone with um, with uh, an app that we have. And I have to say, 
I'm pretty excited about our Enduring Word app. We made some wonderful changes in it lately, and this Enduring Word app is just really doing well. We're getting a lot of use on it, and we encourage you, just go ahead and download it. It's available absolutely free on both our um, the iOS format for an iPhone and for Android. Let me just say, uh, with the exceptions of the books, the print books that we offer, uh, our commentary resources are offered to people absolutely free. You can just get them for free. You can get all the commentary on the website, the audio, the video, uh, the resources on YouTube, of course, and then uh, the app, all of it we like to provide free and in as many different languages as we can possibly get things to. All right, let me go to the next question from Jesper. Hey, Jesper, nice to see you. Uh, I saw Jesper just a little more than a couple weeks ago at a conference we were together at in Sweden. Jesper asks, what do we mean when we ask God to bless our food? Jesper, I don't know exactly why you're asking this question, because I taught on this just last night. And since I was teaching on it at night, I don't think you were probably up watching this in Sweden at the time, but maybe you were, I can't say for sure. But I just taught on this last night when I taught the midweek Bible study at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, which is the church that I am no longer the pastor of, but we still attend and I love to teach there from time to time. Yes, I taught on this just last night because we were teaching on the the, uh, feeding of the 5,000. And in the feeding of the 5,000, before Jesus distributed the food to the multitude, he blessed the food. He blessed it. It says that he blessed. And the idea there simply is, is that he thanked God for the food. Yes, but the real biblical pattern is not that when we pray before a meal, we're asking God to bless the food. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to bless the food. That's entirely good. But that's really not what the Bible gives the pattern for in a prayer before a meal. The biblical pattern in praying before a meal is to thank God for the food. Now, I I would just remind everybody that we live in such a strange world today where much of the world, certainly not all the world, but much of the world today, a greater percentage of the world today than ever before enjoys remarkable material abundance. It's really striking. Uh, We have food and shelter and clothing and things uh, spread across the world population in adequate measure more today than at any other time in history by a long shot. What I'm just trying to get at is that it was much more common in Bible times for people to be incredibly thankful that they had food to eat. And it was not uncommon in those previous centuries for people to go without many times in food. You just didn't have food to eat. So the idea of giving thanks for the food that you had was very important and very strong. So that's the fundamental idea behind thanking God for uh, praying before a meal, I should say. The idea is not primarily of asking God to bless the food. More so, the idea is thanking God because you have food. And um, like I said before, there's nothing wrong with asking God to bless the food that you have. Okay, that's entirely good. But don't forget to thank him just for the fact that you have the food. That's really the idea there, Jesper. And thanks for um, asking. God bless you. It was wonderful to see you a couple weeks ago. All right. Uh, Andromeda asks this question. Uh, Is working in another country without a work permit clearly a sin or could it be part of the freedom of the believers? Almost all my church is in that situation, even the leaders. Oh, Andromeda, this is a difficult situation because it touches on a lot of things. In general, Christians are commanded to submit to the laws of the place where they live. In general. 
So it would just be easy to say, well, if you're working without a work permit, that's against the law and this and that. But there is also another principle that needs to be paid attention to, that if laws are fundamentally unjust and against the higher law or principle of God, then someone can say that um, I don't have to observe that law because there's a higher law of God. I could see where somebody could give this reasoning. God commands that people be supported by the work of their hands and that they support their families this way. This is a pattern shown not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. The Bible says that we should work with our own hands and provide for the needs, not only that we have, but for the needs of others, and so that we have enough to give unto others. This is stated. Matter of fact, Paul goes so far to say that if someone will not work to support his family, his household, he's worse than an unbeliever. So we have that biblical principle that people, particularly believers, should work to provide for their families. Well, if a government has unjustly made laws that prevent people from doing that, I can see where someone would reason and say, I have a higher law than the law of the state or the place where I'm living. Now, here's the problem, and this is why I admit this is a a very complicated situation. You can see where somebody would make excuses for just what they wanted to do and simply claim that laws were unjust. So, uh, Andromeda, all I can do is give you the general principle here. The general principle is, yes, we are to obey the laws that are existing in the place that we live, but we do have a higher law than the laws of the city or the state or the nation where we live, and the higher law of God is to be observed above the law of the state. I believe that that is a valid principle, and we just need to be careful that we're not excusing sin on our behalf under that general principle. So Andromeda, that's the best I can do in giving you an answer of that. We do have the secure, the firm law of God, um, and we have the laws of the state, and God asks us or commands us actually to prioritize the law of God over the law of the state. Next question comes from Adonis, asks this, If Father God is transparent like air, then how do you explain Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, and John chapter 6, verse 46? Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 says this, the parable of sheep, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And then John 6, chapter 46, no one not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he who has seen the Father. Okay, Adonis, I'm going to take issue with your fundamental way that you frame the question. This is what you ask. If Father God is transparent like air, then how do you explain? And then you give the verses. Well, Adonis, I... I've never heard anybody use that terminology about God the Father. Now, the the Bible says that God the Father is not visible, and it says that he dwells in unapproachable light. Those are passages from the New Testament that I can think of. But that's different from saying that Father God is transparent like air. I, again, I... We, we say that God is a spirit, speaking of God the Father, and that's true. But we're not denying that a spirit can't have also some bodily or corporal presence. So, Adonis, I, I would just push back on that initial thing. We can't see God the Father. But it does not mean that in an absolute God the Father has no bodily form that the angels or God the Son or other glorified beings cannot see. He is invisible to us, 
but it doesn't mean that he is transparent like air. So again, I would just go back to the very premise or the way that you phrase the question and say that, um, you know, maybe we should rethink that. Thank you for that question there, Adonis. Brooke asks this question. Is there evidence that Luke was martyred or lived a full life? Brooke, I'm really not immediately aware. I don't, I don't have that in my mind. Um, th- there's certainly no kind of well-known stories of what happened to Luke. Um, I would suppose that there are legends, uh, stories from the early church. Um, I would assume that he was martyred because I, I would think that if he had some remarkably long life and died uh, a natural death, that that would be notable and would be more well-known. So I would just have to look into it just like you would, Brooke. I, I think that's a great question. Um, but I, I think we should assume as a companion of Paul, as someone who was so boldly associated with Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus, that um, that was the state. So uh, I would assume that he was martyred, uh, but I, I can't recall any of the specific legends at this present time. Jordan asks this questions. What are your views on psychotherapy for believers? J- Jordan, I-, I would be down on psychotherapy. Now, look, I, I don't, pass myself off as an expert and an authority on these areas. And so I'm not even um, going to pretend that I understand all the terminology. When you say psychotherapy, I understand that to mean someone who's not addressing the medical issues involved with a person's health and how medical things may influence a person's a thinking and emotive state. When I hear psychotherapy, I think of somebody who's dealing with Freudian or Jungian approaches to psychotherapy, psychological therapy upon a person. And for me, I'm pretty much down on that. I don't doubt that Um, In some cases, it's probably done good for some individuals. There's a saying that we have in English sometimes. We say, um, uh, even a blind squirrel can occasionally find an acorn. Uh, So, you know, good things can happen in unexpected situations. But the whole basis of Freudian or Jungian psychotherapy to me or whatever else schools there are out there, are, are, are not built on a foundation that comes from truth coming from God and being revealed by the scriptures. I think that there can be a lot of help in people talking to other people. If you want to call it a therapist, if you want to call it a counselor, if you want to call it a friend, if you want to call it a professional, th- there can be great help especially in those people who understand some of the physical dynamics that lie behind these things. But as far as the classic psychotherapeutic categories, no, I I don't think much of them. For those things that uh, have to do with the non-medical, the purely psychological sort of aspects of these things. So I I hope, Jordan, that that's uh, answer enough for you. Um, That would be my perspective on it. Next question comes from Popol, asks this question, uh, are babies from miscarriages, stillbirths, abortions in the hundred thousand year millennium, or do they just go to heaven or what happens with these children? Well, first, Popol, I think that you are um, asking, number one, uh, if there will be miscarriages, stillbirths, abortions in the thousand-year millennium. Uh, I think I can pretty categorically tell you that there will be no abortion in the thousand-year millennium. Um, I'm very confident of that because it will be under the righteous reign of Jesus Christ 
uh, it won't be under the reign of man. And I, I can't see that Jesus would um, allow a system where babies could be murdered in the womb. So I, there won't be abortion in the millennial kingdom. But as for um, miscarriages and stillbirths, uh, I, I would say Popo very possibly. There will still be sin and there will still be death. And the effects of sin and death will still be um, present. So in light of that, um, I think that it's very definite or very possible, I should say, let's say, let's take that word back, definite. It's very possible that there would still be miscarriages and stillborn births in the uh, millennial earth because there will still be death and sin will still be present. It's just that the world will be ruled perfectly in its administration by Jesus Christ and those whom he appoints, those whom he um, appoints to do that. So really, that's, that's the answer I would give. Now, you, you ask a secondary question there, and the secondary question is simply this, um, what happens to these children? Well, I, I would say the same thing that would happen to children now uh, who are miscarried or stillborn. Uh, I believe that they are in the arms of a loving Savior and that having never been accountable for personal sin, um, God judges them mercifully. I don't think that they are innocent of sin in the womb because they inherit sin from Adam, but they're guilty. They're, excuse me, they are free of any committed sin that they are guilty of. And God will judge them with great mercy. That's the way that I would see it. Uh, Barry asks this question. If a child aged 10 to 13 requests to be baptized, what are some questions to ask to determine if they are ready for baptism? Hey, Barry, that's a great question. I would look at it this way. Um, the main thing I would want to know from that child is if they have an awareness of sin. M many times this is the thing that is lacking in children. Uh, they have little or no awareness of their need for a savior. I think this is very important that we can't truly put our trust in Jesus Christ until we are well aware of our need for a Savior. Um, so, we don't need a Savior only because we're sinners guilty of sin. There are other aspects very much involved in our need for a Savior, but that is certainly one way or a predominant way that we are in need of a Savior. So really, Barry, that's what I would put the focus on. I would put the focus on the idea of um, is a person, a young person, aware of their need for sin? And I definitely believe that young people ages 10 to 13, whatever, they definitely can be aware of their need of a Savior, and they can definitely trust in Jesus as their Savior. Um, young people, children definitely can be believers and can put their faith in Jesus Christ. So um, it's good for parents to sort of um, be aware and, and try to lead their children to Christ, especially as they see that the children have a greater and greater sense of need for that. Next question comes from uh, Koforola. Please forgive me if I'm uh, mispronouncing your name. Maybe I'll use your second name that's given, Olomu. Olomu asks this question. As a pastor, have you ever felt as if you were being treated like a god, similar to the attention that Paul and Barnabas, Peter and John received when they were used to perform miracles? How do you respond to people that tend to put you in that light? Well, Olomu, um, what a wonderful question. Uh, I can say this. I, I don't ever remember feeling that people were treating me as if I were a god, but I do have the sense that at times people have um, been 
they've thought more highly of me than they should. Let's put it that way. Maybe uh, I've preached and God has used it. I've written something and God has used it and people are expressing their gratitude. I have felt more than one time that people are um, thinking more highly of me than they actually should. I would not put that in the category of being treated like a God. But I have to say, when I sense that people are thinking more highly of me than they should, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, I I don't want to be the focus of the attention. Uh, I want Jesus to be the focus. I want God and his word to be the focus. And so I'm anxious to deflect the attention or the praise off of me. Look, I am grateful if God uses me in anybody's life. And making an impact for God's kingdom, I would prefer to make a large impact more than I would prefer to make a smaller impact. So I have no apology for that. But even in whatever impact I make, I like to stay, we use a phrase in English, to stay under the radar. That just simply means uh, to not draw so much attention to yourself. So I'm pleased for whatever ways that my work may touch people, but um, I'm happy if the attention is on the Lord, is on his word, on Jesus, on someone else, just not on me. Um, I, I would respond just by deflecting or channeling the attention away from myself and towards other people or other things. That's the best way that I would explain it there. Olomu. Thank you for your question. Bandi asks this question. What use is knowledge from the Webb telescope and its discoveries for Christians today? Mandy, I I don't know of any direct connection between the things that are discovered through great technology like the Webb telescope and other things. But I would simply say this, that Christians should rejoice in the work that scientists do. I'm quoting this off the top of my head, so forgive me if I don't have the verse uh, exact in my mind. But in Proverbs, it says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search it out. Um, I think it's the glory of God, again, to keep some things concealed. But it's the glory of humanity, and the uh, writer of Proverbs even puts it in the figure of a king. It's the highest of humanity to search things out, to try to discover as much as we can about this world that God has created us into. And I know that sometimes people get kind of anxious because uh, it seems that scientists claim to discover things that contradict maybe what the Bible says about things. Look, that doesn't really bother me at all. I just say to the scientist, please stay humble because you don't know everything. You don't know most things. But secondly, keep searching. Because I think that the more science knows, the more it brings it into consistency with God and his word. So I do think that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of humanity, of kings even, to search things out And I think that technology like web telescopes, uh, other technology down to the greatest telescopes, down to the smallest microscope, these are things that reveal to us in some way or another the glory and the grandeur of God. As far as specific discoveries from the web telescope, Bandy, I just don't know. So I can't really say. Bob asks this question, who is the bobblehead guy on your shelf? All right, Bob, I was wondering if somebody would ask this question. So, in about a week ago, a radio announcer for an American baseball team, the Los Angeles Dodgers, died. So, this is a bobblehead of Vin Scully. Now, Vin Scully was a very notable baseball announcer. And I apologize a little bit because I know that we have an international audience for these videos, both live and then later on and tape. And um, first of all, you, you may not know or understand American baseball. 
And secondly, you may not know or be familiar with a particular baseball team that is uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers. But look, uh, I grew up playing baseball. Um, It was a wonderful thing with my family, with my dad, with my brothers. Um, Baseball has a dear place just as a sport, a hobby in my own mind. Um, I've been a big fan, to use that term, of the Los Angeles baseball team, the Dodgers, since I was a little boy. And so I just, it's just a hobby and enjoyment for me. And this man, Vin Scully, was a very notable announcer for them. He retired in the year 2016, and last week he died. So there was a lot of commemoration. That's just my little honoring. Now, just a day ago, I recorded a video titled... Nine Things That Preachers Can Learn From Vin Scully. So look for that out on our YouTube channel. I can't tell you exactly when we're going to post it, but that video, Nine Things That Preachers Can Learn From Vin Scully, you may be interested in that. And since I was recording that video, I had Vin Scully's bobblehead, and I said, you know what? This is the first Q&A that I'm recording since the passing of Vin Scully. I'm going to leave it up on there for uh, this particular Q&A. Let me continue on. a question having to do Zechariah chapter 12 verse 7 is this verse a basis for the view of the Lord's arrival during a second coming at Basra instead of at Jerusalem Zechariah chapter 12 verse 7 says the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory in the heavens of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah Okay, let me just say this. It could be when we construct the scenario of what will happen when Jesus returns, we're told of him coming to three places, the Messiah in his glory. We're told of him coming to Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. We're told of him coming to Basra. That is in modern day Jordan, the former territory of Moab, Edom, that area. And we're told of him coming to the valley of Megiddo with the, um, with the battle of Armageddon. Those three places are mentioned in different Old Testament passages in reference to the return of Jesus. Him coming to Jerusalem, to Basra, and to the valley of Megiddo for Armageddon. Now, these places are relatively close to each other, but they are three distinct places. And what's interesting for Bible students, for people who like to examine these things is, in what order will Jesus go to those particular places? Well, I believe, and again, I would have to look at my notes on this to to be sure, but I believe that there's a reference to Jesus coming or the Messiah coming to the valley of Megiddo with his robes red from Basra. By the way, the idea of his return at Basra is there to protect the Jewish people who have fled to that area as refugees and are under attack. That's the main idea of the visit to Basra. The main idea of the visit to the valley of Megiddo for the battle of Armageddon is for him to... Uh, exert his authority over the armies of the earth that have gathered to do battle against the Messiah. And his idea of the visit to the Mount of Olives is for him to establish his sovereignty as king over all the earth with his new capital at Jerusalem. So in which order does he make that visit? We don't exactly know. Off the top of my head, I think you could say that he comes perhaps to Jerusalem first and then to Basra and then to uh, the Valley of Megiddo. But it could be that he starts in Basra and then to Jerusalem and then to Megiddo. Or it even could be that he begins in Basra, then goes to the Valley of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon and then to Jerusalem to establish that sovereignty uh, arriving at the Mount of Olives. But that's the way to frame it. The Old Testament understands that the Messiah returns to three places. And again, we don't regard this as a contradiction, not at all. It's just there's a sequence in his return to Basra, to Megiddo, to Jerusalem. That may very well be the order of events, but it's not so clear that we would be dogmatic about this. 
Hope that helps you. Gal asks this question. Can you recommend ways that I can encourage other people within my community to be in prayer and to be prayer warriors and to be more like Jesus in the way that he prayed to God the Father? Gal, let me give you a few ideas here. I don't think it's effective when people are nagged into prayer or guilted into prayer. That may bring an immediate response, but I don't see that it does very often a lasting good of getting people to really persist in prayer. So I wouldn't be looking to nag people or to guilt people. The number one thing you can do to inspire a spirit of prayer among other people is for you to pray that God would send a spirit of prayer. There's something that happens remarkably among people who can be stirred by the Spirit of God to simply become people of prayer or greater prayer when they were not before. And that's something that very much can and should be prayed for. So that's number one. I would say pray for a spirit of prayer. And then I would say this, um, do whatever you can to personally invite people to pray with you. Just say, hey, could we take 10 minutes out to pray together? There are times when people feel very intimidated by the idea of a, you know, hour-long prayer service with other people. Uh, but surely there will be more people who will respond to request, let's pray together for five or ten minutes. So I would say that praying for prayer is always good and always valid. And then number two, that simple idea of inviting people to pray uh, in very just entry-level ways with you is another thing that I would do. But as God gives you the wisdom and the ability, avoid trying to nag people or guilt people into praying more. Okay, next question comes from uh, Zemeraldo. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. How do I overcome past errors especially ones that continually continuously disturb the conscience. Zimraldo, I think the thing to do is just to continually come back to the understanding that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for our forgiveness, for our cleansing from sin. And we need to be very secure in that knowledge that what Jesus did on the cross was enough, that there's really nothing that we can do to add to it. We need to come to that place of peace. We need to come to that place of just being settled in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It sounds to me a little bit, Zimraldo, that your conscience may be troubled by um, the work of Satan and his agents, Satan who's called the accuser of the brethren. And look, when you feel Satan accusing you, trying to condemn you for your sins, whether those sins are in the past or the present, I think it's very important that you don't try to debate the issue with, you, with him. Don't try to convince the devil or any of his agents that you aren't as bad of a sinner as he's accusing of being. Matter of fact, you could even say to the devil, you know what? I am a great sinner. I'm even a greater sinner than you're accusing me of. No doubt there's some sins you're leaving out, Satan, when you accuse me of sin. But I will say this, that even though I am a great sinner, Jesus Christ is a great savior. Zimraldo, Get away from a focus on the greatness of your sin. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that. But even more so, focus on 
Um, uh, it's even better to have a focus on the greatness of Jesus as a savior. Let that be lifted up in your heart and your mind. All right. Uh, another question from David comes here. I attended a morning service last Sunday and the Lord's Prayer was changed. Is this acceptable when it's the Lord's Prayer given to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, i.e. the trespasses against us was replaced with sin and sinners? Okay, David, this is a good question. Um, I would be against changing the wording in any substantial way of the Lord's Prayer. If you want to pray your own prayer or lead a congregation in your own prayer, great, that's fine. Just don't make it the Lord's Prayer. However, however, I would um, give this proviso. If people are just substituting words that can substitute other words, I wouldn't be so upset about it. In other words, if the issue is the word trespasses and somebody uh, substitutes the word sin for that, I don't see that as a change I would be concerned about at all. Because sin and trespasses are largely the same thing. Now, I did hear of somebody changing the Lord's Prayer where they changed it from trespasses or sins to mistakes. That I would be very much against because you're changing the wording in a way that changes the meaning of it. But to be honest, I don't see a substantial difference between trespasses and sins. I mean, I, I could go on in the minutia and discuss the difference between the two different words at their root, but the concept is the same. So if somebody is just changing vocabulary but largely keeping the meaning the same, I'm not so concerned about that. But if they're changing the words that changes the meaning, then I think that they should just pray their own prayer that isn't meant to track alongside with what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. So David, I hope that answers that for you. And then here for our last question, hey, and I wanna say thank you to those who submitted questions that we didn't get to. We compile them, of course, and I hope to get to them in a later um, Q&A. Uh, but let me get to this last question here from N, who asks this. How do we know whether to continue praying for something versus leaving it up to God by trusting him to handle it as he sees fit? Okay, and I'll give you a general principle that I've used. I, I have some scriptural foundation for this, but it, it's really more just wisdom that I think I have or have gained, I hope I've gained, in my own Christian life. I will persist in prayer for something or someone until I feel the Lord guiding me to stop praying or until I feel that there's an answer to the prayer. Um, I, I don't think that... Um, well, it is okay to say... Lord, I'm not going to ask you about this anymore. I'll just leave this to your hand. That's okay. But it is okay to continue to persist for this, to persist in prayer. That's entirely okay. So I, I would lead this somewhat up to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Um, but look, every time we pray, we're leaving things for the Lord to handle as he sees fit. Isn't this the pattern of prayer that we should have? Just this surrendered heart before God, where we genuinely have that heart that says, Lord, in everything that I pray, I'm leaving this in your hands. That's why we're praying. Um, but the principle of persistence in prayer should make us to continue on um, because God wants us to be persistent with it. Look, we've all heard of stories where people say, Look, I, I was praying for this for 20 years and God finally answered. I think that that's something that gives honor and glory to God. Um, but again, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, I think we can say, I, I will no longer pray for this and now just leave this in God's hands. So sorry, I couldn't give you a more opinionated answer to that, but really that's the best I can do at this particular time. Well, I wanna say God bless you. 
Thank you for joining me today. Uh, God willing, and if I live, I'm going to be with you next Thursday, and we can do this all over again. But I'm very pleased that you could join me. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today, and thanks for all the great questions. God bless you, and we'll see you again in the coming week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.